Now we're going to read God's word together. If you've got a Bible, turn up Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is the champagne of the New Testament. It sparkles, it fizzes, it's full of joy. And here we're going to read some more of this wonderful letter. Philippians 2 verse 19 to 30 and there's Jez will come and preach. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Do you keep your Bibles open? We're going to be looking at that passage um, together from Philippians. Now, I'm sure many of you have had the experience, particularly when you were younger, of seeing a teacher outside of school. Um, it's, a, it's mind-blowing when you're a child, isn't it? And you know the scenario, you're going about your daily life, maybe you're in a supermarket, you're walking down the aisles and then you notice at the end by the cereal, one of your teachers. And you're, you're just thinking, Miss Hedman, what, what is she doing here in, in, the, in the actual shop? She's wearing trainers. She's even buying Frosties. This is crazy. This doesn't, this doesn't make sense at all. And maybe you're the sort of person in that scenario. Um, you may have been this child to kind of hide and make sure that under no circumstances you make eye contact with your teacher. Or maybe you were the sort of child who would be quite bold and audacious and go up to your teacher in the shop and say, hello. Now, I know there are a number of teachers watching and this may be your nightmare scenario um, seeing children outside of, outside of work. But the thing is, seeing teachers outside the classroom is a strange experience, particularly as a child. We only know our teachers in one area of life. Um, as far as we're concerned, they exist mostly just to teachers. They only exist in a, in a kind of boundaried classroom. It's as if they don't really exist outside of school. But when we see them on the street, when we see them buying groceries, it gives us a hint that they are real people. And of course, as we get older, we understand that they are normal humans just like us. They have hopes and fears and even hobbies like we do. Now, some of us, I think, might struggle to believe that the writers of the Bible are actually real humans like we are. Let's take the Apostle Paul. Um, we may be tempted to think of him mostly as a brain on a stick, 
someone who communicates big, deep theological ideas, a teacher, if you will. And we can miss that someone like the Apostle Paul is actually a, was actually a human person, someone who lived in a particular place at a particular time, who had the realities of life pressing around him and they evoked feelings and, and um, thoughts inside of him, just like life does to us as well. And so in today's passage, we see Paul, as it were, outside of school. We enter into his very human experiences and his feelings. And we also meet two of his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as we look at these three guys, um, we will see examples of what it means to live the Christian life. What does it look like to live a godly Christian life on the ground? Because we see their lives not just their teaching. And they're going to show us in full colour what godliness, what living like Jesus actually looks like in the real world. So we're going to meet all of these three people in turn and we're going to learn lessons from each of them about what godliness is. And the first person we're going to meet is Timothy. And Timothy's going to teach us that godliness means selflessness. Godliness means selflessness. So at the beginning of the passage, in verse 19, Paul tells us that he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippian church. And the idea is that in sending Timothy, those Philippians will be really encouraged to see him. And also it will encourage Paul as well, because he will hear back from Timothy how the church is doing. Now, Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. Verse 22 says that Timothy has served with Paul in the gospel as a son with a father. Timothy's work has, he, he's proved himself through his work. He's, he's diligent. He was Paul's most trusted, trusted colleague and apprentice. We know elsewhere in the New Testament that Timothy was a very gifted man for his age. He was given all sorts of responsibilities, including appointing elders in all the churches in his local area. So though he was quite a timid and a shy character, we read, Um, in other letters in the New Testament, we do know that he was very capable. But for all his gifts, look at what Paul highlights about Timothy. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I have no one like him. Why does he have no one like him? Well, because Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was selfless. Notice that the chief characteristic that Paul holds up about Timothy is not his ability to teach the Bible. It's not his organisational skills or even his charisma and gravitas as a leader. No, it's the fact that he loves other people and serves them and has them on his heart. Here is a man who genuinely cares about God's people in this case, the Philippians. And that's what makes him the perfect person for Paul to send to see them. And Paul indicates that sadly, Timothy is a bit of a rarity. Look at verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. By everyone, Paul is possibly making reference to some of the um, teachers of the gospel that he mentioned in chapter one, who do teach the Christian faith faithfully and and, and truthfully, but are doing it out of selfish ambition and trying to get one up over Paul whilst he's in prison. 
So they're doing it for status and, and for praise. And that is a tragic thing, isn't it? There's something really sad about the fact that someone like Timothy, who genuinely cares for other people, people like him are in short supply, even in the church, even amongst Christian leaders. Paul says that there are many who are not selfless, but Timothy is, and that is what stands him out. And so our lesson here is, is straightforward. To have a heart to serve others is a crucial element of Christian maturity. Godliness means selflessness. Look at verse 21 again. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He holds up the interests of Jesus Christ and he holds up the interests of others and he essentially equates them. He's saying this, look, do you want to know how to serve Jesus? Well, then serve other people. To look to the interests of others is to look to the interests of Jesus Christ. And that makes sense in light of um, an earlier passage. If you look at verse 4 in this chapter, that's where Paul commands the Philippians to look to the interests of other people. That is what it is to serve Jesus. You know, many people think that serving Jesus means doing Christian leadery type stuff like I'm doing now, speaking to you from a camera, in front of a camera, preaching the gospel, um, speaking from the Bible. Maybe you think it's about um, life group leading or being on a rotor for an in-person gathering. That's what it looks like to serve Jesus. And serving does involve those sorts of things. But those things are not enough. What Paul speaks of here is actually caring for the interests of other people, having them on your mind, caring for them, thinking, I wonder how that person is doing. Or if you know that they're suffering in some way, thinking actively and taking the initiative to think, how can I help this person? It's having headspace for other people in your mind and not just thinking purely about what's going on with ourselves. Now, I've been encouraged to see the way that members of Grace Church have echoed this kind of, this, this patterned behaviour that someone like Timothy um, holds out and have taken the initiative to serve others um, in intelligent ways. So I think about those who have started food rotors um, for new parents who, who've just uh, had a new child or, or those who are, who are struggling in various ways and, and don't have a lot, a lot of time and capacity for whom having a meal provided for them is just really, really helpful. I think of those who phone up some of their friends just out of the blue because they've just been thinking about them and want to know how they're doing and asking how to pray for them. In these sorts of examples, there's a clear sense that without being asked to, these people have got beyond the busyness of their own lives and thought creatively about other people and how to serve them. This kind of pattern, this posture, is crucial, Paul says, to Christian maturity. And you know what's scary? You can be really gifted and not have this characteristic um, and, and not be mature in this way. You might be excellent at organisation or at teaching the Bible or leading or planning um, and still not be selfless. But in the end, giftedness is no substitute for godliness. But on the flip side, what this means is 
that true maturity, true godliness is actually accessible to all of us. You might not have lots of skills in the way that other people in the church have them. You may not feel like you can lead. You might not have public speaking um, skills. And not all of us are natural talents at planning. But that's okay. All of us are capable, capable with God's help of being selfless bit by bit, more and more as we progress through the Christian life. And according to Paul, this is what matters. We can be like Timothy. And Timothy himself, he's just a picture of the Lord Jesus, isn't he? You see, Jesus has our welfare on his mind. He looked to our interests when he chose us before the foundation of the world to be part of his people. He cared about our welfare when he came to earth and even died on the cross in our place in order to save us. One of the most precious truths I think about the Christian faith is that even now the Lord Jesus has you on his mind. He prays for you to his father. You see, Timothy's selflessness is only an echo of the servant heart of the Lord Jesus himself. So let me ask you, who is on your heart? Who can you reach out to this week? Who can you take the initiative to think through? Um, who can you think about and, and consider how to serve this week? Godliness means selflessness. Well, that's Timothy. And now we're going to be introduced to another of Paul's friends, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is going to teach us that godliness means risk. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So Paul has already said that he wants to send Timothy, although he's not able to do that at the moment. He needs Timothy by his side for a little longer, probably because Paul is waiting to see what's going to happen to him whilst he's in jail. Is he going to be given the death sentence? Is he going to be released? And he needs Timothy around for the time being. But until then, he's going to send Epaphroditus to the Philippians straight away. And Epaphroditus was well known to that church. In fact, he came from that church. And actually, Epaphroditus had been sent originally from the Philippians to Paul. Paul describes him as a messenger who had been sent by the Philippians. Now, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul by the Philippians in order to help Paul whilst he was in prison. In the ancient world, um, prison systems were not good for their welfare. Um, those who were, in, who were incarcerated needed provision from outside sources, from friends or family to provide them with food and, and, and other needs. And so in order to support Paul, the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus, presumably with some money, all the way from Philippi to probably Rome, where Paul was in prison, um, to come and look after him and take care of him. But there had been a problem. Our passage reveals that Epaphroditus had got ill, seemingly on the way. Severely ill, in fact. He'd almost died. And so having recovered, Paul sees it best, perhaps now, to send Epaphroditus back home. Now we can see that like Timothy, Epaphroditus is selfless too. Look at verse 26. Paul says that Epaphroditus longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. 
So Epaphroditus is distressed, not so much because he was ill, but because his friends and family back home had heard it, he was ill. He was concerned about the fact that they would be really worried about him without modern communication techniques like letters and emails to be able to keep them updated on how he's doing. But it's not Epaphroditus' selflessness that Paul in particular wants to highlight and emphasise. Paul particularly praises him for his risk-taking. Look at verses 29 to 30. Paul says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. What seems to have happened, commentators suggest, is that on the journey from Philippi to Paul, Epaphroditus had got really ill. But instead of cutting the trip short and deciding to go home, Epaphroditus decided to keep going and press on in order to get to Paul and give him the aid that he needed. But what happened was, as he pressed on, Epaphroditus got more ill, to the point that even though he reached Paul, he almost died. Now, according to Paul, Epaphroditus' efforts should be recognised. He says he's worthy of honour. And so there's a larger principle here. Paul says that godly people will take risks for the gospel. We're not talking about any sorts of risks here but risks in order to serve God's people for the cause of Christ. Christians will take risks. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If we're going to be selfless, like Timothy showed, um, that kind of risk and daring in order to serve others goes hand in hand with that selflessness. Godliness means risk. Now, as a culture... I would say, in general, we don't really like the idea of risk. I would suggest that we live in quite a risk-averse culture. We see risking things as unwise. And what matters most is safety. We think about what it's been like over the last year as we've greeted people and said goodbye. What is the phrase that keeps cropping up? Stay safe. Stay safe. See, risk is foolish. Safety is paramount. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? Certainly, needless risk can be reckless. It can be irresponsible. We all know about ways you can make dodgy financial decisions. We can make big life choices without really considering all the factors or getting outside input and advice. That can be risky and that can be irresponsible. And certainly, to be responsible and safe is a good thing. That's Part of the reason we put together that video earlier that you saw, why we're putting lots of measures in place to ensure that when we meet in person, that it is safe. That's a good thing. But the problem is, in a risk-averse culture, there's the potential that we remove the possibility of taking any risk, even if it will serve other people. One unhelpful side effect of a risk-averse culture is the fact that we can become precious. Precious about our time. Precious about our money. Precious about our energy. Life can become boundaried. We draw firm lines in the sand around ourselves and we say, I am willing to give this much of myself, but no more. And we're not willing to budge at all. 
Now, again, boundaries aren't bad, but this kind of attitude can come with a miserliness that is not willing to sacrifice anything in order to serve other people. And the truth is, I, I see this in myself. So about five years ago, share a funny story, I was graciously invited to attend quite an important leadership meeting in the church. Now I had no right to be there, really. I'd never been to something like that before. It was a unique opportunity and it was a privilege and I enjoyed being there. But whilst I was there, in the back of my mind, I was conscious about when the meeting would end because I needed to get up early the next morning in order to go to work. Now, as it got to about 20 past 10, I started clock watching. I would normally be in bed by half 10, don't you know? And at half past, I, it kind of got to the point where I actually spoke up and said that I probably needed to go soon. And I can't remember exactly what happened. Either I left early or actually the meeting closed shortly after that anyway. And so in relief, I was able to go home and get to bed. But I look back on that time with quite a degree of embarrassment. I'd actually ended up making a bit of a scene because I was so concerned to keep to the boundaries that were rigid and that I'd placed on my life. Would it really have been the end of the world if I'd have gone to bed half an hour later or even an hour later? I mean, I might have been a little bit more tired the next day, but the problem is I had been precious and it had got in the way of me serving and distracted me from something that was really important. Now that is not risk, is it? I mean, even if I had stayed till 11 p.m., I couldn't have said I did this in the spirit of Epaphroditus. That would be ridiculous. But being precious over my time kept me back from quite a basic level of service. And I wonder if it had revealed idols of comfort and control that I was not willing or ready to relinquish. Now granted, that is an extreme example. Most of you are not like me. But it does illustrate a kind of preciousness that does exist in our culture. A hesitancy to put ourselves out for the good of others. An unwillingness to budge. And so I do wonder how much our church community has been hindered by this culture. What are you precious about? And have these things that you're precious about hindered you from serving the gospel, serving others in your church? Now again, this, this risk-taking that Epaphroditus is honoured for is a picture of Christ. Now in one sense, Jesus didn't take risks in the sense that he knew what was coming. <laughs> but he did certainly put his life on the line, didn't he, for you and for me. You know, Epaphras wasn't sure that he would die of his illness. Epaphroditus, sorry. Jesus, on the other hand, knew that he would die. That was a certainty, and yet he still did it. He still went to the cross for you and me. And so there's something of that willingness to sacrifice, that risk, that should be shown in the people of Jesus. And godly risk is worthy of respect. So if you know somebody, maybe someone in the church or someone out, outside of the church, a Christian who you know has risked themselves um, to help others, who's not precious, who's been sacrificial in their service of God's people, well, Paul's command is to honour them, verse 29. 
Praise God for them and let them know your appreciation. That will be a great encouragement to them because they've brought glory to Jesus. Godliness means risk. Well, we've met Timothy. We've met Epaphroditus. Finally, we get to meet Paul. And Paul teaches us our final lesson today, which is that godliness means suffering. Godliness means suffering. Now, when I was in school, I did a GCSE English literature essay in which I had to compare two films, two World War II films, The Longest Day, which came out in 1962, and Saving Private Ryan, which I'm sure many of you have seen. is a fantastic film. And both of these films contain scenes um, covering the Omaha Beach landings. So the Omaha Beach landings, a pivotal moment in World War II where Allied forces um, break through enemy lines in mainland Europe. They land on the French beaches of Normandy and they uh, defeat the Nazis there. And, and it's a pivotal moment that means they go on to win the war. And in both of these films, they show the scene of soldiers coming in on boats onto the beach um, and defeating the enemy. But they both do so in very, very different ways. So the longest day, the soldiers come in on the boats. They can see the coast ahead of them. They see smoke, the beginnings of explosions. They can hear gunfire, artillery. And when the boats land, um, the soldiers get off the boats. They run up the beach. And you hear explosions, you see some allied soldiers dying. But there is a sense of confidence to the troops. As they land on the beach, the doors open and you hear this cheering, as almost as if they're one person. All the soldiers run up the beach and there's a sense of victory to the scene. But Saving Private Ryan is entirely different. So as the boats approach Normandy, the fear is palpable. You see Tom Hanks' character, his hand shaking from nerves. You see two soldiers throw up before they've even got to the beach. And then when they land, the doors open and it's chaos. Instantly, large numbers of soldiers are shot without warning. They all die. Those who survive, they scramble out of the boats. They're falling over in the water. They're desperately trying to avoid gunfire. Throughout the scene, soldiers get mowed down one after the other by machine gun fire. There's blood and dirt everywhere. And there's no cheering. There's just the incessant sound of gunfire and explosions. And you just get this sense that these young soldiers feel utterly out of control and terrified. So comparing the two films was easy in the end. The Longest Day is quite idealistic. It even made being in the army look quite glamorous. Whereas Saving Private Ryan was a lot more realistic and depicted in, in real terms the horrors of war. Now if you've read Philippians so far, you might be tempted to think that the Apostle Paul is a longest day kind of guy. So yeah, he's got hard circumstances, he's in prison, he's dealing with rivals who are trying to get one up on him. But he, you might think that he's coming out the boats cheering as it were. After all, Philippians, it's the letter of joy, isn't it? Joy is the resounding theme. What is it Paul has already told us? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we sort of read that and we think, is this guy unflappable? Is he just able to face any hardship with a smile on his face, humming in Christ alone to himself? 
Well, in this passage, we see that though he is joyful, it's not as if his hardships don't weigh heavily on his heart. You see, the reality of his life is more saving Private Ryan than it is the longest day. And the army analogy is fitting. Look at how he refers to Epaphroditus, a fellow soldier, verse 25. Christian service is war. It's a battle. And we see in these verses the toll it takes on its soldiers. Now you'd think, wouldn't you, that the, the, the model of suffering, the key model of suffering in this passage would be Epaphroditus. He's the one who gets ill. He's the one who nearly dies. But Paul, in seeing Epaphroditus get sick, shares in that suffering himself. He gets deeply worried. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. You see, Paul sees in Epaphroditus' recovery, God's mercy not just on Epaphroditus, but on him. Epaphroditus was a dear friend, and the prospect of watching him die, it was such a heavy burden on Paul. You know, it's one thing to suffer yourself, isn't it? But as many of you know, there's a particular kind of pain that comes with seeing somebody else suffer, someone who you know and love, someone who is dear to you. It's its own suffering. The worry, the fear, the helplessness of it. For Paul to have lost Epaphroditus would have been devastating. It would have been, as he says, sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was already sorrowful. The imprisonment, the difficulty in which he was in, it it got him down. He was a man who knew sadness and even stress. Look at verse 28. He says that he feels anxiety. And so if Epaphroditus had died, it would have only compounded the sorrow that was already there. And we get this insight into Paul, don't we? This vulnerability that he has. He's not just a theological brain on a stick. He's actually a human being who is as vulnerable to the ups and downs of life as any of us are. And if Paul here teaches us anything, it's that godliness means suffering. Now, at one level, that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) human life means suffering. It's not just Christians who suffer. We all suffer. This life is hard. But there are particular sufferings that come with being a Christian. Opposition from others, mistreatment as you try to live a a godly life, these are inescapable. But I want to speak for a moment here about a particular kind of suffering that we may not think of immediately. And that is the suffering that comes when you are selfless. It's a suffering that comes when you invest yourself in other people. Benjamin Warfield was a 20th century very influential American theologian. And he described godliness as meaning that you enter into every person's hopes and dreams, longings and despairs. It means investing in people like we talked about Timothy doing. He said, it means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls so that their lives become ours. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? We live a thousand lives as we invest 
in other people. But the problem is, if you live a thousand lives, then you open yourselves up to a thousand times the pain. You see, as you get to know another Christian, as you choose to have them on your heart, to think about them and serve them, you become invested to the point that when they suffer, you suffer. And when you have to say goodbye, it really hurts. I lived in the Czech Republic for a couple of years and I became really good friends with a couple called Martin and Teresa, a Czech couple. And I remember Teresa opening up one time when we were chatting about the fact that I'd be going back to the UK and some of our other friends who she knew would be going back. And she said that it was just really hard to become friends with Brits and Americans in her city because they always leave. They're always around uh, only for a short time. And she sort of joked and she said, you know, I'm not making friends with British people ever again. Now that was a joke, but actually that is one solution that people have, don't they, to, to being hurt. Self-protection. Don't invest yourself in others too much. It takes a lot of energy bearing another person's burdens and they often hurt you or leave. You know, self-protection is the reason why many of us will not actually let other people close. We keep them at arm's length. That can happen in friendships. That can even happen in romantic relationships. We avoid, we keep people back so that we don't get hurt. But that's not the life that Paul models for us here in these verses. Godliness means suffering in so many ways, but one way is in loving other people. You see, as we reach out to others, we do naturally increase our capacity for experiencing pain. Paul was burdened that Epaphroditus was ill. It would have broken him if he'd have died. But this burden he felt, he should have felt it. That was not wrong. It was godly. Paul is a model of Christ himself, isn't he? Who was the man of sorrows. And wasn't Jesus the same? When his friend Lazarus died, he came and he saw the effect it had had on Mary and Martha and those whom Lazarus had left behind, and he wept. You see, Paul and Jesus show that more than anyone else, they show more than anyone else that godliness, it doesn't mean lobotomizing your emotions. Okay. And so this is helpful for us, particularly if we're sorrowful, isn't it? If you feel sorrow in your Christian life, if you feel like you're suffering, and you're finding it really hard, and you're feeling low, that's okay. It's okay. You've not failed at godliness. Just please, in your pain, don't choose to push yourself off from other people, to close your heart to others. Well, finally, and we're, we're coming to a close, but if godliness means suffering, how do we reconcile this with the joy that Paul has mentioned so far in the letter? If he's sorrowful, how can he also be joyful? Well, it seems that these things are not incompatible. Now, clearly, this isn't a joy that means purely skipping around the hills singing the sound of music. It's a joy that can coexist with sorrow. How do we reconcile these things? Well, one writer describes Paul's mood here as hopeful grief. Hopeful grief. Yes, there's grief. Yes, there's sadness. Yes, there's sorrow. But it's not without hope. 
You see, even in a Christian's darkest days, they can have a joy, a joy that comes from a confidence in God, in his goodness, in his control, in his ability to bring beauty even out of darkness, to work great things in us and in other people, even as we struggle. And above all, we we hope, don't we, for that resurrection life at the end of time where this world of tears will end and we'll, brought, we'll be brought into to fuller joy. You see, we do mourn, but we do not mourn as the world mourns. Godliness means suffering, but we don't suffer without hope. And maybe that's a message that a few of us need to hear this morning. Well, as we've come to the end, we've met Timothy, we've met Epaphroditus, we've met Paul. They've taught us that godliness means selflessness, it means risk, and yes, it means suffering, but not a suffering without hope. Now, when you look at the model that these men give us in this passage, you may feel like it's a million miles away from where you are at the moment. You may feel selfish and risk averse. You may be the sort of person who actually closes yourself off from other people. Me too. I understand. But the truth is that Jesus can change you. His life, death and resurrection has actually unleashed a power in you by the Holy Spirit to make you godly if you trust in him. Yes, these are ways we've seen today in which we should work out our salvation, which Paul mentioned in the previous verses, verse 12. But at the same time, we remember, don't we, that it's God who is working in us for his good pleasure. And we have that wonderful promise in chapter one that it's God who will complete the work that he started in us. That's chapter one, verse six. We can grow in these ways. We can live a full life, one that serves others sacrificially, that binds ourselves to them, that enables us to live a thousand lives as we invest in others, particularly other Christians. So we can ask for his help. We too can echo that life of Paul, Epaphroditus and Timothy, who are only really pointing us to the Lord Jesus, who exemplifies all these character qualities. And if we show those things to the world, what a witness that would be. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only have you given us the Lord Jesus as a picture of godliness and sacrifice and service, we've also given us Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, three guys who we don't know that much about in many ways. We only get little glimpses into their lives from the scriptures. But we learn enough to to see what godliness looks like on the ground. Lord, we confess that in many ways we are selfish, that we are precious. We don't want the concerns of others to invade our time and our energy and our money. Lord, we also are afraid of suffering. And sometimes that means we close ourselves off from other people altogether. Lord, please forgive us. Give us strength by your Holy Spirit to help us to be more loving people so that we would love each other well in the church and that we would love the world 
Please help us to be more like the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he has been all these things and more for us. In his name we pray. Amen.